0: Hello, hello. What in the daylights was that? Can, hello, can we do that again? <laughs> can I do that again?
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Hey, that reminds me. Did you did you hear the unmistakable ring of truth that came out of the... Wait a minute, listen carefully, gang. Now, here, here. That came out of the California legislature the other day? Did you hear that story? Well, the head of the California legislature, the Speaker of the House gets up and he's looking at the California legislature, see. And they're trying to get a bill through. And they're saying nothing. They're just sitting there. And finally he says, "I'm getting sick and tired of this. Are you guys men or are you mice?" And with that, the entire body of the legislature of California all went <whistles> thousands of them squeaked. <laughs> Uh, all right, we have a serious uh, thing we've got to do here tonight, gang. Get ready here. All right, I'm getting set here. Uh, yeah, cut seven. It's marked with a cross, which is symbolic in the religious sense. Uh, you'll also find... I want the, Hey, I want, the, Lee, I want the George uh, Antile, the biggie. I want that first. Bill, uh, she'll give that to you. All set now, gang. Now I have a scary, a couple of scary things to do here tonight. I don't want anybody to uh, misunderstand this. Uh, it can, can get, uh, it can get very exciting. Bill, set that one up first. It's your cut one? Uh, the big one. There. That's a, we need that first. All set? Yes, sir. Boy, oh, I'm really scared. Uh, I have a. Uh, did you see a picture in the Philadelphia Inquirer? Any of you got a chance to see this great humor paper? There's a. Uh, a picture in the Philadelphia Inquirer. I'm going to show this. Lee, would you please put this in my file of what's happening in our time? Great uh, bits of trivia. Look at it. You won't believe this. A guy in California grew a gigantic rooster. That's a rooster, baby. That's a rooster. Take a look at it and listen to this. He's His, his name is... Uh, he's a super rooster. His name is called Weirdo. A 22-pound chicken... a a giant rooster, actually, so vicious that he murdered his 18-pound son, killed two cats, crippled a dog for life, and, in fact, has completely terrorized the neighborhood, twice the size of a normal large rooster. Weirdo is the sire of a new breed of gigantic, fierce, angry chickens that could have a vast impact on the world's food supply. That reminds me of all those those mad scientist things that I've seen. It's terrible. I can see it now. Once in a generation, a movie is produced that is so terrifying, so exciting, that one cannot leave one seat before the last exciting frame has completed its way through the camera. You must be over 18 to see this motion picture. The Motion Picture Corporation takes no guarantee that any heart attacks that result as a result of this unbelievably scary movie will be their fault. Well, all performances of this movie are attended by a trained nurse. Doctors will attend the the personal appearances of the star around the country. Little echo chamber here, Bill. Be sure to see...
1: The Chicken, chicken,
0: chicken That chicken, ate, 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 ate Staten, Staten Island! Island. <laughs> yes, The Chicken That Ate Staten Island will prove to be an exciting movie. Once in a generation, the motion picture is produced that ranks with the great classics. Frankenstein, Dracula, The Thing, Godzilla, and now it is... The chicken that ate Staten Island. Thank you. That was very nice, Bill. It was very elegant. Yes, indeed. I like great production here. The chicken that ate Staten Island. What an unbelievable chicken. Twenty two pounds? Wait a minute. You you should see him though. He's not just twenty two pounds, he's twenty two very tall, wiry pounds. He's not a little short, fat chicken, is he? Look at the size of that guy! Look at him! Look at him trying to hold him! And he killed two cats. He crippled the dog. He murdered his eighteen-pound son. <laughs> oh, there's a chicken! Now, for that, you know, if you're a chicken fan. Incidentally, speaking of uh, great animals, I see where one of my favorite uh, one of my favorite uh, animals is making a personal appearance. Uh, You know Morris? You know Morris? Hey. Oh, we'll wait till Lee's through in there. She's checking something in there. Yes. You know Morris the cat? Yes, Morris. The one that says, oh, my God, another rubber mouse. (laughs) Oh, don't worry about it, then. Quit arguing. Just play any kind of that in there. You guys are all confused. The one that's marked with a cross. It should be simple, even for you to find. Yes. Yes. And uh, nevertheless, uh, Morris uh, is is making a personal appearance. Now, animals are getting very big in films. In fact, uh, Jerry Lambert, who works with me... uh, Anyone, you guys are making a big production. I'll come in and cue up that damn thing. You can hold this down for a while out here. Gee. But uh, Jerry was leaving the studio the other night uh, here on, on 1440 Broadway. Did you hear the story, Al? Jerry was leaving the studio the other night, and he, he, he goes downstairs. It's midnight scene. It's dark out. And he says he couldn't believe it. Coming out what appeared to be the door right next to him was a giant rat. Yeah, on 1440 Broadway. He says he looked just exactly like he had made a smash guest appearance on the Barry Farber show. And, you know, and he says, he says, my God, it looked just like Ben. You remember Ben, the famous movie rat? And he says, it was Ben. He he swears it was Ben. You know, he's on a personal parents tour around. And and Ben, he says, he walks right across the sidewalk and cuts across Broadway and tried to hail a cab. And he said, and, and he headed in the direction of, of there's a ticket agency across the street that stays up late. And he looks like he was booking a ticket to Las Vegas, you know, where he's going to play at the Sands, the Thunderbird there. And, and Jerry says, my God, he said... He had all the pizzazz and all the charisma of a true star. He said, he came out of here. He said, either it was on the Earl Dowd Show or Barry Farber. He couldn't tell which. He said, he was carrying a banana with him, so it probably it was the Dowd Show. And, uh, he says, you know, these, these, uh, animals are getting big, but, but, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether, whether Morris, does Morris know he's a big TV star? Yeah, and I said, oh my God, another rubber mouse. Oh. All right, you know. Speaking of TV, a guy wrote me a letter the other night, and uh, he said, "Shepard, he says me is a guy write, writing from this school out in Pennsylvania, Gettysburg College, you know." And uh, he says, uh, "Shepard, he said, uh, me and my buddy are sitting around here. He says we're reading passages of Ferrari in the bedroom. He said your book. He says we're laughing like hell. He says about four in the morning. He says we're reading this this book, and all of a sudden he said we got it. That we got talking about books that we have read. You know, that we dug." And he said, Shepard, we're going to ask you a trivia question. And all right, I will ask. And he asked it in the letter. He says, Shepard, can you tell me the name of Ernie Kovacs's only novel? And I said, indeed, I can. In fact, not only can I tell you the name of Ernie Kovacs, the only novel Ernie Kovacs ever wrote, the late Ernie Kovacs, but at the time he wrote it, we were friends, and I used to see a lot of Ernie. And I can tell you a lot of stories about that novel. But, now, I'm going to ask you a question. Uh, one question, and, 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 and I'm, I'm going to even lay it on you, Dowd. You think you know something. What was the name of Ernie Kovacs's novel? The novel that Ernie wrote. Now, don't you tell everybody, and that'd kill the whole point. You know why you know the name? Because I told you the name. Yes. Now, what is the name of Kovacs's novel? Do you know, Earl? Uh, isn't that something? And he wrote this novel, and it's a—I'll uh, I'll give you a clue. It's, it's one of the funniest and one of the best novels I think ever written about television. What was the name of the novel? And I'll even give you—I'll I'll, I'll award you a brass fig de gee, you listener types out there. If you can rise above, if you—you know—if you want to rise above the ordinary muck and mire of listenerdom, if you want to rise above the humdrum uh, daily. Uh, uh, the daily mud of being in the audience, rise like a great golden sailfish out of the sea of mediocrity. If you want to flash in the sun for one brief moment, tell me the name of Ernie Kovacs' novel. And establish yourself as a, as, a, as a human being above and beyond the ordinary run, the muck and mire of the ordinary human lemming. What was, his, what was the name of his novel? Oh, isn't that terrible? I'll tell you one story about the novel. I won't tell you the story doesn't make any difference it uh, you know you uh, when you when you're faced with 22 yeah I know I uh, you... Chan no Chan was not the name of the novel you, you you've uh, booted it again Chan was not the name of the novel no no oh, oh you want me to do the Chan commercial. I see. Well, I'd be glad to do the House of Chan commercial. Incidentally, do you know that Ernie used to eat the House of Chan a lot? And and I at one at one time I had a couple of drinks at the bar, of the House of Chan, with Ernie. Uh, because this was you know this was right in the middle of everything. For those of you who don't know the New York scene too well, you will find the corner of Fifty Second and Seventh is in the middle of the action, man. I mean, in fact, right around the corner was a drugstore where all the comics of the period used to hang around, including myself and Milt Kamen, yes, and and Ernie. And I could tell you, one after the other, the guys used to sit down there. And uh, Mel Brooks uh, used to hang around his joint. Then whenever we got hungry, we'd run down the street either to the uh, the, uh, 7th Avenue Deli or uh, to the House of Chan, which is on 52nd and 7th, a very fine Chinese restaurant. The food is great. And uh, they're open seven days a week, which is real great. Until midnight, which is even better. And uh, the food is good, always, consistently good. The House of Chin, Fifty Second and Seventh. Now, does somebody know the name of the, the novel? Right. Uh, no, I, I, eight doesn't mean anything to me. Oh, oh, it's nine. Oh no, I don't. I don't want to talk to this guy on the phone about it. I forget it. He's. He's. Uh, I'm not. I'm not interested in talking to him. No. No. I just want to make sure that there's one one solitary, struggling bit of human flotsam out there, you know. A sea, you know, you're afloat like a cork on the sea of crud that we live in day after day. <laughs> who we'll remembers Ernie's novel? <laughs> in fact, how many of you even remember Ernie, who was great? Fascinating guy. I knew Ernie. And uh, we used to exchange a lot of bits, by the way. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, several of the bits that he used on the show, we used to exchange back and forth. His his uh, director was a buddy of mine, uh, Barry Shear. And, in fact, Barry just directed this movie that's playing around, Across 110th Street. That's Barry. Yeah. Ex-tenor man, by the way, Barry Shear. Yeah, not a good tenor man. He's a better director than he was a tenor man, but, uh, you know, every guy to his own. You do the best you can with what you got, and he didn't have a good lip. But they. <laughs> He did pretty well, but uh, nevertheless, uh, that uh, you know that kind of thing. And, and I, I don't, you know, since this is the middle of the week, we might as well be honest about things here. I mean, you know, you, you got to play it for what it's worth. I got a letter here again. Here's another one. Says Shepherd. He says, I don't know what to say about this. This has developed into a very bad scene. Apparently, a lot of people over the past Christmas. You know, we've just had Christmas. In case you don't know what time of the year this is, but uh, a lot of people are in that kind of fog these days. Do you ever have that, uh, that vague feeling? You know, we live in a, in a world that's almost totally air-conditioned now. You know, the sun never goes down, never comes up here in the studios. You know that, Bill. I mean, uh, 2 o'clock in the morning looks the same as 10 in the morning in this curious, hermetically sealed world we live in here. So it's very difficult even to know at times what, uh, what, uh, what season of the year it is. Uh... You can really tell what season of the year it is around here. Though no, the only way you can tell is, is John Wingate changes his hairstyle in the spring. And he hasn't done it yet this year. And we're all looking forward to it. So we don't quite know yet. Uh, this is WOR New York, you know, what time of the year it is. It's very hard to know. So uh, I, I, for those of you out there who, who gain all of your knowledge from electronic means... Uh, you know, it's, uh, your your entire world is, is based on uh, watching TV or listening to the radio or digging records. You, you, you have no contact with the birds out there, and the, you know, the stuff underneath all the bushes. No, that's right. A lot of people don't. I'm going to tell you, Christmas is over now. It's been over several months, almost, uh, well, let's see, it's the end of January here now. It's been over a whole month already. And uh, I just thought I'd let you know, this is part of our public service broadcasting. Easter is not here yet, so you don't have to worry about that yet. Although it's just about time to start getting a little itchy about Groundhog Day. And uh, we'll keep you abreast of that. And we'll warn you well in advance before the 4th of July comes so that you won't get caught short with that one, you know, with no sparklers and all that. and They're out of firecrackers and stuff down at Christidis. So we'll, we'll keep you abreast. Uh, you know, as best we can here. It's not easy. But uh, according to this uh, informant and several other informants, in fact, uh, several hundred Apparently, over the past Christmas, due to my my somewhat insidious uh, uh, influence on the population at large, large numbers of people were given Jews' harps for Christmas and uh, found that the Jews' harp is a much easier concept to talk about than to play. As a matter of fact, I have here a letter. It says, my friend and I both got Jews' harps. We both go to school. It says, we got Jews' harps. He lives in Clifton, New Jersey. Glad to see that they've started schools and stuff over there. And uh, I can see he writes in a fine Spencerian hand, learned by rote. And uh, he says, uh, his Jersey accent does not come through his writing, but he does say, however, he says, me and my friend, uh, we've, we got these two jews harps for Christmas. And now he says, it's a terrible disillusionment. He says, next to the sousaphone, I personally have never found an instrument harder to play. My friend chipped his tooth on that twanger that he got, And, in fact, I suffered a badly bruised and bloody lip. He says, now, neither of us are are able to play a single legible note on this damn thing. And we're very frustrated because it looks so simple. It's so little. You can hold it in your hand. How do you play it? Well, there's one question. I have another one here. It says, says, uh, after listening to you for a long time and hearing you play the Jew's harp for so long, I went out and bought one. To my dismay... I was not able to play two single notes that sounded like actual music. I've been going at it for weeks. All I get out of it is a dull boing, which, repeated over and over again, bores even me when I'm playing it. Seeing as how you are obviously an expert on the subject of Jews, Harp, if you could give me a crash course on playing this evil instrument, I would be delighted. That is impossible. That is like writing to Isaac Stern and say, please give me a crash course on how to play the fiddle. No way. It's a mean instrument, And I will give you... And I'm not going to do a Jew's harp thing tonight, except to show you that uh, to get that kind of sound takes a lifetime of dedication.
1: Hear that?
0: That's control. Watch this. Okay. Now, that's just, you know, playing around with it. Now, if you would please give me a little Sicilian accompaniment... I will join a uh, another fine jew's harpist and we will give you an uh, an illustration of how it should be played. <laughs> Please hold it back. Uh, reset that, will you, Bill, if you will, please. Uh, the Jews' harp happens to be the... Uh, the uh, it's in the national instrument of Sicily, along with a couple of strange-looking flutes. And uh, and they play these Jews' harps in a, in a classical Sicilian fashion. Now, you're listening to a record that is an Italian recording, not available in this country, and was purchased, as a matter of fact, in Sicily. Uh, This is a true Sicilian recording. Now, I will first play the recording uh, of this Sicilian Jews harpist, and you will hear the similarity to the technique that I use on the Jews harpist. This is a fine Sicilian Jews harpist playing a traditional Sicilian, a kind of Jews harp blues, but basically a tarantelle or a tarantella. Shepherd, doesn't it? Now, we'll join in with him now. <laughs> okay, <laughs> that was dull, wasn't it? <laughs> no, you just you just got to have a taste for this kind of thing, and uh, I just thought I'd uh, tell you that uh, don't don't despair about uh, learning to play your juice. Incidentally, uh, you can always tell a uh, a Jews harpist, a really accomplished Jews harpist, by the innumerable tiny scars that can be found on his upper lip. Uh, that, plus the fact that almost all really good Jewish harpists have it at one time or another, had one of their front teeth crack from beginning to end. So uh, it's all part of the scene. Bass players, for example. If you ever know a really good bass player, he usually has calluses on his on his uh, first two fingers and on his thumb that maybe weigh as much as a pound and a half each. Oboe players?
1: Hmm?
0: A harpist? Well, harpists are usually tall, thin, aesthetic blondes. Who, uh, who tend to fade off in the distance when you sit uh, off in the distance. You can always tell a harpist because there's a faint mist of ethereal grace about them. That's due to the you know the influence of the harp itself on uh, the psyche of the person playing it. Now, uh, you can also tell, for example, peckhorn players are always noticeable. Uh, peckhorn players, every peckhorn player I've ever son- I've ever known has bulging eyes. His eyes just bulge out. Due to the fact that the enormous pressure required to play this inhuman instrument causes the head to bulge out from inside and pop the eyes out like grapes. And uh, the first uh, peckhorn player I ever knew who had a pronounced case of this was you've seen uh, you've seen uh, poor Milt Kamen, haven't you? You know, this is bulging eyes. Peckhorn player, one of the great peckhorn players, by the way. Really good one. And uh, he got those bugging out eyes from trying to play that damn horn. He also got that nervousness from that. Did you play enough peck horn and the uh, man you're a very nervous person. This is this is a horn that can turn on you and strike like a hooded cobra right in the middle of your big solo in a Wagnerian overture. You know, pop you're playing this, uh, you know, let's take you're playing the there's in the in the overture to Norma, there's a long horn solo that goes Well, I want to tell you this. Every horn player I've ever known, as his time approaches and that baton goes up and points to him and he settles down, his neck bulges, his eyeballs bug out and he goes 14 million hours of practice rehearsal. Twelve billion hours of of studying. And what do you get? So Milt went into comedy. He says uh, since it was becoming a comedy act, every time I played the thing, I went into it and made money out of it. See, now that's not. Uh, other instruments also present uh, various physical problems, which you may not be aware of. For example, all all retired sousaphone players tend to walk always through their life from that time on, as though they are struggling against a high wind. Have you ever noticed that I walk at a 45-degree angle, bent over, right? This is not because I'm skulking or I'm afraid that Herb Saltzman is going to catch me behind the water cooler, anything like that. It's because some of the formative years of my life was spent trying to push a con double B-flat Uh, sousaphone into a spanking wind and also sustaining the various other... And you notice also, there's another thing about sousaphone players. They tend to keep their head low because people are constantly throwing beer cans and uh, Coke bottles and various other things at the bell of your horn. Now, people are generally not very good shots. Not everybody is Tom Seaver, so you wind up getting tin cans bouncing off your head People throw unmentionables into the bell of your horn. It's very embarrassing to open the spit valve and some terrible stuff comes out you don't even want to talk about. This has happened to many a horn player. So it does. It, it causes a certain uh, a, a diffident uh, fear that is always evident among the sousaphone players. Now, you want to hear about other instrument players, uh, Well, how they develop their things? Well, I'll tell you. Every trombone player I've ever known uh, is 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 a curious buffoon. Uh, there's something about playing a horn that goes and you keep pushing it back and forth that does not be. It's not serious. No one can take a trombone seriously, and no famous trombonist has ever made it in the concert field. You You never hear, you know, uh, Charlie Bullard and his golden his golden sousaphone or his golden trombone. Uh, play Richard Wagner tonight. No, it it just just doesn't happen. So he he tends, the the trombonist in any group tends to be the guy that always has the Polish jokes. He always tries to gain uh, acceptance among any group by his lame attempts at humor. We had a trombonist, for example, who just by the very nature of what he was, was that way. Richard Beanblossom was his name. Now anyone with a name like Richard Beanblossom's got problems for starter, but when he took up the trombone, it was only compounding the felony. Six feet nine, weighed 82 pounds, and a very bad trombonist, but he was fantastic with Polish jokes. He had millions. He could even play them on his horn. He could play, uh, yeah, you could hear him. You know, the the trombonists tend to try to get talk. You ever heard them talk with their horns? Yeah. And he'd sit there in the middle of the trombone section and make obscene comments in B-flat. And they blad them away. Now, other other instrument, uh, instrumentalists also have these. I don't know why I brought these this subject up tonight, but uh, those of you who have ever played instruments recognize what I'm talking about. Now, clarinetists is another breed. The clarinetist tends to be a highly introverted, scholarly person. Uh, first of all, the clarinet is also a treacherous instrument. And it's painful to play. You play the, the clarinet for a while, and that constant vibrating reed produces a, a curious numbness around the mouth. And and uh, these are not pleasant people to be around. I've never known a good-tempered clarinet player. Evil-tempered, as a matter of fact, is more the, the general. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ed. Every, uh, that's right, Ed. Clarinetist, you're, you're an ex-clarinet player. I did not know you when you played. Uh, Benny Goodman had a notoriously vile temper. Because the instrument that he carried was like, well, it's like literally spending your life playing a hooded cobra. It was a mean instrument, and also an ugly-sounding instrument. They did not have the clear dulcet tones. There's a certain whine to the to the clarinet that is not pleasant, not like a cello is a, is a deep, mellow instrument. You want to know how to play the raspberries? What was that? What what instrument are you curious about Oh all right uh, I, I've, uh, I've studied these instruments now uh, the the let's take up the guitar now. Uh, everybody I know believes that he can play the guitar. Uh, this is uh, this is of course a rash uh, a rash idle dream. as a matter of actual truth, Charlie, out of the entire population of the world, which now far exceeds two billion, there are there are roughly there are roughly three actual guitar players. That's right. All the rest of the people are just merely public bores. Uh, and and uh, the, the guitar is an instrument which uh, many people feel they can play. Wait, we just have received the news note. Uh, yes, we just received this. Sp- Thank you, Charlie, from our, from our trivia editor in the newsroom. Thank you, Charlie. Uh, the mystery of the falling bluish ice around Wisconsin Rapids, Wisconsin has been solved. We just got this in from the newsroom. A pathologist analyzing the contents, see there was a falling bluish ice was dropping down around Wisconsin Rapids in Wisconsin. And a pathologist analyzing the contents said that the frozen substance came from an airliner toilet. The bluish color coming from the disinfectant used. <laughs> the pathologist reasoned that the airliner's holding tank had probably sprung a leak. Okay, they were lucky it was blue. All right. Okay. We'll leave that note for what it's worth. Although, uh, I will say this. Uh, I will say this, that... Uh, that uh, No, I better not, because there are women and children listening tonight. I better not say it. But uh, that... Uh, <laughs> that's a problem that was... Uh, that uh, I, I have a lot, uh, several anecdotes that I could tell you about that as a flyer, but I will not. I will not due to the fact that it is quite early yet. It's only not even uh, eleven o'clock here. These stories are good for after midnight. You know when you're when you're indulging in the beer that calls for more than one. Then you tell these stories. Although I will tell you this is I, I was out in uh, in an airport one time in uh, in central Florida. Uh, Arcadia. See, I walk into this uh, this hangar here, and uh, here, sitting in the in the middle of the floor, there was this uh, was this J3 Cub. You know, you know what is it? A Cub. Everybody uses the word Cub. Every, they think every every airplane's a Cub. Well, actually, damn few are. The Cub is a is a very ancient aircraft today. Oh, they still build the Super Cub, but I'm talking about the the, the the classic J3 Yellow Cub. Well, that's a great little airplane. And uh, it's uh, it's in the category almost today of the Model T. I mean, it's a great classic. And a lot of guys uh, have restored them and used them. Well, anyway, there was this old J-3 Cub sitting in this hangar, this battered old hangar, and it had no doors. That is the Cub. You know, the doors were off of it. And there's a real raunchy little airplane. So it had oil stains all over the side of it. You know, to work an airplane. So I'm looking at the airplane, and I notice it's got some kind of a tube sticking out of the bottom. And I said to the guy there... Uh, who was running the hangar there, this, uh, this Florida type, uh, who had never been out of Central Florida? And I said, um, I said, hey, you see, that, that when I'm around in a place like that, I use the native dialect. So, hey, uh, how come you got that tube on the bottom of the J3 here? And he looks at it. He said, well, that belongs to Ernie. He's a, as a pharmacy here in town. He's a druggist. I said, well, how come he's got that tube? He said, well, Ernie's got bad kidneys. I said, okay. And I put two and two together. I says, you mean Ernie flies over the town? He said, yeah, he does that sometimes when he's not feeling good and he's mad. I said, I see. And I could just imagine, you know, people walking around town. Someone says, hey, you know, there's a touch your rain. I can't figure it out. And uh, it's old Ernie up there in the sky. But uh, <laughs> why do you ask for my anecdotes? I got millions of them. I can, I can tell you a lot of flying anecdotes. But I'm glad they solved the problem of the the, the dreaded blue mist. Descending on the Wisconsin Rapids must have been an exciting time when all that stuff came down. However, that's not <laughs> that's not the first time stuff has descended from the sky, uh, and it has not been necessarily snowflakes. We got another news note here. Yes, indeed, a professional. Oh yes, uh, that's true. That's it. Right, so here now, here you go, Ed. A professional clarinet player called and says you are wrong. Clarinet players do not have bad tempers and he would like to slash your tires, turn your car over and burn it if you keep saying them rotten things. Okay, that's right. I, that's just a typical clarinet player. Oh, listen, I tell you, I did I ever tell you about the time I saw a clarinet player do it one time? It's a fantastic scene. And now I'm, I'm telling you an actual story. Now, now, <laughs> you know, it, it, things happen within bands. Bands are not happy groups at times. There's great intramural rivalries develop. And there's a great sense of of rank in a band. Now, as a matter of fact, you take the, you you look at those sousaphone players out there. Now, probably to to the untutored eye, you would think, well, they're all sousaphone players, but they are not. There is a first sousaphone player, and there is a second sousaphone player, and then there's a third sousaphone player, and then there's the rank and file. Now, that's a very different thing. Now, what does the first sousaphone player do, or the first French horn player, or the first clarinet player? Well, whenever there's this great part shows up in the middle of this uh, Wagnerian overture, you know, like uh, it says ta 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 Solo peckhorn playing away there. The overture to Norma. See <says> Well there are there are about five other peckhorn players sitting around. What do they do when the first peckhorn player is going <says> they go <says> He goes, twa da, twa da twa da twa Then these other guys go, twa-twa. Then he goes, twa-da-twa. Twa, 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 twa. Then they go, twa, 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 twa. He goes, twa, 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 twa. This, is, uh, this is rank. In other words, there's one bird that sings the tune. The other birds just tweet. Right? Well, now <laughs> I was uh, I was present when that broke out one day. A little thing happened. I played only one year for the benefit of uh, of the uh, statistically minded. I played one year in a marching band. Uh, I played four years, however, in a concert orchestra and in a concert band. But one year in the marching band, due to the fact no, due to the fact that I pro, I played I played freshman football. And, and our marching band performed only at the varsity games. The, fr- the, prof- the, the, the freshman games were played on Saturday morning. And so, Friday night, we would have the big varsity game. Then when I moved off the freshman club and was on the other bigger club, I was no longer able to play in the band. But I knew a lot about that band, having been part of it. And a great moment happened in my freshman year. I had just come, become part of the band. And I always had this idea, you know, bands were sort of all together, all to one, you know, the three Musketeers jazz. Well, we were out in the middle of this great field and we're, we're forming a block H. Tremendous block H. we are playing Semper Fidelis. Or El Capitan. We're playing away there, see. And I I'm playing with the I'm playing with the sousaphone section, and the sousaphonists would make a big fan with the horns. We would go fanning out. You've seen that, you know, wow, we'd go fanning out, man. And uh, Jake Doppler, who was the number one sousaphone player, he was the center of the fan. He was our number one player. So Jake would would, uh, give us a cue, and we would fan out. Well, we're doing this great moment, this great number. We're making a big block H, and at at a crucial point in the block H, we would reach down into our tunics, and we would pull out these folding purple pom-poms that we would pull out, and it would make the, uh, the block H purple. And some guys would outline them in white. It was fantastic. See, we're marching. Oh, just, it was a great work of art. Well, <laughs> we have finished this block H, and now uh, Stinky Davis, who was our majestic uh, drum major, maniacal drum major... Uh, he was driven by forces only that maybe Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, would have understood. He was driven by deep, murky forces. He turns and he blows the whistle. You know, <laughs> and We start the beat and we're peeling off. Now we get up into the stands. We had this opening, you know, in the stands where the band was to sit. You've seen that Ed, in the in the in the football. See, see, this is at the end of the halftime show, which we were, of course, sensational in. And we came pouring up into the stands, and now we have, we've all taken our seats in the stands, horns, the whole bit, see, and the, the, uh, the uh, cheerleaders are doing the whole thing down in front of us, and they're just about ready for the first, the second half to begin, when the trouble broke out. Now this, uh, I don't like, to, uh, this, this is, if ever since this time, ever since I saw this, I have had a deep, abiding, subterranean fear that one day I'd be caught in the dark by a clarinet player. I mean, they're vicious. I'll tell you what I saw happen. Roger Bean Blossom is sitting down there in the second row, and and he's got this his trombone. See, he played trombone. Old Rog and his brother George were both trombone players. See, Roger was the short one, George was the tall, skinny one. And so Roger Bean Blossom. Who played the third trombone is sitting down in the second row, and uh, and he's blatting away with his horn. He to uh, tend to, you know, the, the football players come out, and he goes, wow, 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 wow. He's blowing a horn like that, and, you know, to, to, to ha- add a little to the festivities and stuff. At that point, George, who's sitting next to him, George Bean Blossom, picks up his horn, and we had a great halfback who was distinctly Polish. As a matter of fact, his name was Al Dogelio, Al the de Tank Dogelio. And uh, he was. He was built very much like an M4 tank, if any of you are familiar with the silhouette of that particular vehicle. Uh, Al was was a classic M4 tank, and so Al played fullback. And at that point, Al comes charging out on the field. See, this is in the halftime. I've never told this story. You might as well listen to it. Uh, Al goes charging out, and he walked with this wide stance. He, you know, he goes thundering out on the field, and he's got his helmet, his hand, and the tough old me. Al D'Agelio was made of solid bristle. I mean, he's mean. And uh, Al was charging out on the field, at which point, George Bean Blossom, with his horn, goes wah, 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 and he plays a musical Polish joke directed at Al D'Agelio. Well, sitting directly behind him was Ernie Bielski, who was also a Polish gentleman who played... A very good clarinet. He specialized in polkas. He always had a lot of trouble. He was, he, a, 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 a Polish clarinet player makes everything sound like a end with
1: bump, bump, bump.
0: He used to play the Overture to Norma. We would play uh, the Entry of the Gods into Valhalla, and always over it you would hear Ernie's unmistakable polka clarinet. You know, he played this. No matter what he played, it came out somehow like a polka. So, Ernie Bielski, Ernest Bielski, if you prefer, here's this terrible uh, blatting sound which George Bean Blossom, I might say George, I saw the whole thing. George Bean Bean Blossom had blown. Ernie got so mad he had he had one of these metal clarinets. You know the kind, the of silver ones. He takes the clarinet and he pokes it in poor Roger's back, who's innocent. Roger, sitting there, turns around and he sees that, that, that Ernie Bielski has said something to him uh, about this Polish joke, at which point Roger says, Shut up! I didn't say nothing! At which point Ernie got mad and hit, <laughs> hit poor old George B. Blossom right over the top of the head with his clarinet and the clarinet was U-shaped. He bent this clarinet into a solid U. Well, at that point, old ancient animosities broke out. There had been always a a, a deep, smoldering feud between the trombone section, these buffoons, and this this curiously smoldering, hamlet-like section called the clarinet section. Yes, they are not clowns. Clarinet men are serious people. They tend to wear rimless glasses. And they tend to look very serious about life. Well, within 30 seconds, the clarinet section is fighting it out with the trombone section. And and George Beanblossom, an innocent trombone player, wasn't, wasn't even a good trombone player. He, he couldn't play the trombone very well. He couldn't have done what what Roger did. Roger actually could tell you an entire story with his trombone. You know, complete with coders and little stinger notes and everything at the end. Triple-tonguing the whole bit. Well, poor old George has got this horn hung around his head and they couldn't get it off. It was bent like a U. And they were wrestling and rolling around on the ground. Well, it began to spread. It spread to the peck horns. It spread on up through the, through, yes, I mean, the, the, the cornet, the, 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 the trumpet section took it up. Uh, uh, we had a great trumpet man who, by the way, lost a very fine con trumpet that night, got trampled by a bunch of drummers. And before the evening was out, that band was one moiling mass of angry, slugging, yelling humanity. So ever since that time, I've had just a little bit of, well, let's put it this way, uh, respect. I'll put it politely. Respect for clarinet players. Treacherous lot. And more than that, they don't just utter idle threats. They will strike they will hit. This is WOR New York and you better know it. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the Real News.